Hello and welcome to the Do One Better podcast in philanthropy, sustainability and social entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Alberto Ligi from London. Please click that subscribe button if you haven't already and please share widely with others as well. It makes a huge difference indeed. Today we're talking about blindness and why it is something that can be eliminated within our foreseeable future. And it is such a pleasure to welcome onto the show Dr. Sanford Greenberg. And we're going to be looking at his work. He is uh, he is a philanthropist. He is someone who also happens to be blind. He's very well versed on the topic. And he's also doing some remarkable work with Johns Hopkins. Uh, there's going to be a new initiative coming to the fore. And we're going to be talking about that as well. And he's written a book called Hello Darkness, My Old Friend. And uh, we're going to be looking into why that's the title that he picked for the book, which I think is really interesting. Now, before we kick things off, I'd like to extend a heartfelt thanks to our sponsors, Quilt AI. Quilt AI is an artificial intelligence-powered consumer insights and market research platform. They currently work with approximately 100 clients, ranging from large corporates such as Coca-Cola, Unilever, and Visa, to technology companies such as Twitter and Amazon, and large philanthropic organizations such as the Gates Foundation, the World Bank, Girl Effect, the UN, and Children's Investment Fund Foundation. With 6 million data sources and hundreds of AI models, they're able to answer any consumer or beneficiary research problem across more than 90 countries. And in 2019, their mission-based technology approach led The Economist to calling them an AI for good company. So do check them out at quilt.ai. As I mentioned a minute ago, today it's such a pleasure to welcome onto the show Sandy Greenberg. Sandy, it is such a pleasure to welcome you onto the Do One Better podcast today. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Why don't we start by getting your take on blindness and why it is something that we can eliminate within the foreseeable future. When I was uh, in a hospital in Detroit, 1961, I was there because a doctor misdiagnosed my condition. I was told that I had allergic conjunctivitis when the truth was that I had glaucoma. And this glaucoma surgeon did the best he could to save my vision February 1961. But unfortunately, the operation was not successful. And I was lying in the hospital bed and after a couple of days began realizing the dimensions of blindness. And needless to say, I found it to be a very unattractive position to be in in life. And uh, out of my anguish, I promised God that I would do everything I could for the rest of my life to make sure that no one else should go blind. That was 61 clearly a naive and adolescent promise. But when you promise the Almighty something, it's a serious matter. And so after I left the hospital, I returned to school and uh, began looking at the scientific world to see if there was any hope that my promise could be realized, I found, in a word, science lacking in terms of what we were trying to accomplish with vision. So it took a number of decades before we arrived at a point where at least 
in my case, Sue and I decided early part of this century that what we're going to do in the first instance was try and incentivize the most brilliant minds of our generation to pay attention to the world of blindness. And we created a $3 million prize to be given to the person or persons who contributed most to ending blindness. We, on December 14 of 2020, we uh, provided the 13 awards to the people who had done most in our judgment to end blindness. Hmm. And now here we are 60 years later from that um, 1961. And where do we find ourselves with regards to the science today? Um, if I think of blindness, I don't see a resolution to it anytime soon, but you're telling me that it's that it is something that we can hope to to tackle effectively in the foreseeable future. Yes, I I believe that that is true, and uh, I'll give you a couple of examples uh, if that's okay with you. By all means, uh, one of the awardees, one of our, we had two sets of awardees, outstanding achievement people who had accomplished enormous amount, and then visionary awards for people who had the potential to contribute a great deal. Uh, one of the outstanding achievement awards was given to Dr. Jean Bennett and her colleagues. What Jean was able to do was to obtain from the FDA just a few years ago the ability to use gene therapy in the human body, which had never been done before. And she experimented with a number of uh, young blind children who had a disease called Labor's congenital amaurosis. And what that meant was they had a defective gene and uh, in the retinum pigment epithelium of their retina, and she took a gene, it was that gene, the defective one was RPE65. So in her laboratory, she created a new healthy gene, RPE65, injected it into the eyes of these children who were suffering from blindness. And within a few days, they could see again. That, that's, that's what I mean when I say ending blindness. Now, that's one case, but there are obviously many other people who've contributed to moving this thing forward. Uh, in a different manner, there is a development called optical coherence tomography, which uh, was developed by Dr. David Wang, Dr. James Fujimoto, and Dr. Eric Swanson. Actually, it's Mr. Eric Swanson, forgive me. And they developed, using light waves, the ability to see, for example, cross-sections of the retina in such detail that we have never been able to do that before in history without removing the eye from the body. And each year, there are approximately 30 million procedures, imaging procedures, based on what they developed, uh, so that 
we can see things in the eye that we never could before, making a extraordinary difference in terms of the outcomes of the surgeries that are performed. So the science is making really great advances. What about the state of funding for medical approaches to, to tackling blindness? Is it adequate? It's adequate, but it's not perfect. I'll give you an example. Following up on our End Blindness 2020 awards, Johns Hopkins approached my wife and me and uh, they decided that they wanted to create a center, the Sanford and Susan Greenberg Center to End Blindness. Uh, now, our goal in the first instance, speaking about the monetary side, is to raise $100 million. As of today, we have about $50 million. So uh, from our perspective, we have ample funding to pursue what we want to do because the center is the only facility in the world that's devoted solely to eradicating blindness for everyone forevermore. And given that particular view, I think we have gotten off to a wonderful start. And of course, over time, there'll be additional funds put into this effort. And how did the connection come about with, with Johns Hopkins? So you're, you're all, if I'm not mistaken, you're a Columbia alum, you're a Harvard alum, you spent some time at Oxford as well. Where did Johns Hopkins come in? It's a funny story. There were two people in 1994, um, both chairman and former chairman, uh, two people named Morris Offit and another one named Michael Bloomberg. And uh, they persuaded me that Johns Hopkins was a, an extraordinary institution and that I might want to join the board of trustees of that distinguished university. So I joined the board of the university, but also the board of Johns Hopkins Medicine, which incorporates the School of Medicine and the hospital. So that's how my uh, interest in Hopkins began. I originally had a scheduled a half an hour lunch with Bill Richardson, who was then the president. And three hours later, I walked away saying this institution is incredible. Then some years later, uh, I was asked to serve as chairman of the board of governors of its Wilmer Eye Institute, which is the largest clinical enterprise in ophthalmology in the country. And in our view, the finest ophthalmological facility. Now, if I read correctly, one of your uh, one of your uh, drivers there uh, with the center would also, is also about inspiring, promising early career researchers who who have an abundance uh, of, of high risk, high reward ideas, but perhaps lack the funding uh, to pursue those ideas. It, it's correct. There's, in in a way, another type of blindness, which forces young researchers to jump through too many hoops before they can uh, realize their potential uh, contributions by, because of lack of funding. And so we at the center have decided that to 
fund these younger researchers at an age when their imaginations are most likely to be burning with new solutions would be the best way for us to contribute something significant where there is a great need, but also to use that brilliant, those brilliant minds to focus on ending blindness. So we do have a prejudice toward uh, the young scientists because most of the established scientists are funded by NIH. Mm -hmm. And the other and the other side also is that it's not just about funding those scientists, but if I'm not mistaken, also you're looking to give them the tools so that they become more effective at uh, at writing for those grants and uh, and providing them with some mentorship as well. Absolutely. It as much support as is humanly possible, we will be providing to these uh, scientists. Excellent. And the center is launching right now, is it? Uh... Yes, it's right now. In fact, uh, so we are literally in the middle of launching the center. Wow. You must be very excited about the whole thing. Very. Have you met some of the, uh, of the young, talented minds who will be coming through the doors? Yes. Yes, I have. What, what are they like? They are the most dedicated, hardworking, amongst the most brilliant people you could want to meet. Their depth of compassion is extraordinary. They really want to end blindness. That is their focus, and they're devoting their lives to accomplishing it. Hmm. Now, I always like to understand not just the work that my guests are doing, but also a little bit about that personal narrative, that trajectory. And you've given us a little bit of insights from the 1961 revelation where you, you went blind to 60 years later. And obviously, you've been very fortunate with your accomplishments and your career. Give us a little bit of insight into, into Sandy's life. What, what are, what are things, how do things unfold from 1961 till today? Well, you touched on it, the uh, most important thing. Well, there were two people who were crucial. I uh, felt while I was in the hospital that my girlfriend, who I fell in love with in sixth grade, uh, would leave me. And uh, then I had a college, I had two college roommates, both were extraordinary, Art Garfunkel and Jerry Spire. And uh, much to my surprise and delight, all three of them stuck with me to this very moment. And we have had extremely close relationships I've had with my two roommates and, of course, an extraordinarily wonderful romantic relationship with my wife that has persisted since sixth grade. And beyond the, the social support network that you were fortunate to have, life without being able to see uh, you're clearly a, a an example that it's not insurmountable that uh, even without the ability to see you can do great things well i decided in the hospital at the same time that uh, if your vision is destroyed then you will have to rely solely on your mental capacities. And that's when I decided that I had to educate myself 
to an extent that most people thought were exaggerated. So my first goal after getting out was to try and return to Columbia College because I had lost a full semester and go back in my senior year and make up the semester. And as it turned out, I was very fortunate. I was able to graduate with my class, uh, not only as its president, but also Phi Beta Kappa. That was a great launching pad. And then I decided to pursue studies in government uh, at Harvard, where I received my master's and PhD. Uh, more fortunate, I received a Marshall Scholarship to study at Oxford University. When I came back, I received an MBA from Columbia Business School and then attended Harvard Law School for a year, which uh, study was interrupted by an opportunity to serve as a White House Fellow on the staff of President Lyndon Johnson, which completely changed the direction of my life. Amazing. Absolutely amazing. And you'll have to excuse me if this is an ignorant question, but how do you digest all the information that you need to digest while you're doing all of these degrees if, if you're not able to read a textbook the way I would imagine reading a textbook? Well, it's a very good question, and I had no idea how I would do it. I just had to jump into the water and try and swim, fortunately, very fortunately. I had a number of friends who would read to me at Columbia, at Harvard, at Oxford, and without them, I never could have made it. They would come throughout the day and night, they tape record books, they read books live, uh, and uh, I found it amongst the most rewarding period of my life. You see, if you're going to a competitive school and you take out two or three hours a week to read to a blind student, what does that say about the person's character? It says that these are people of exceptional grace. Absolutely. And I have to ask you, what was it like having Art Garfunkel as your roommate, college roommate? Well, and lifelong friends and lifelong friends. Yeah, it, it was spectacular. Uh, the first uh, couple of years that we roomed together, uh, I played the drums and he played the guitar and he and I would sing together virtually every night of our uh, time at Columbia. And we also prayed together and had an incredible time until uh, the deluge, and subsequently, he would read to me uh, virtually every day, every night. When others failed to come, he showed up. Uh, and in fact, uh, you asked the question before about how the book became Hello Darkness, My Old Friend. Well, Arthur, who has a very unique sense of humor, mm would come into the room and say, Sanford, darkness is going to read to you today. Or, Sanford, darkness is going to read you the Iliad. Hmm. And I, I suppose he meant that for me, his voice was emerging from the darkness. So way before Simon and Garfunkel were created, uh, 
I figured that this man called himself Darkness, and he is my oldest friend. So the book was entitled Hello Darkness, My Old Friend, because it's a way of explaining from that point on how my life evolved. Hmm. Was it very difficult uh, writing the book and um, and putting what must be such a such a mix of emotions and experiences and and encapsulating everything in a way that uh, that will convey exactly what you have in mind? That's an excellent question. Uh, actually, the way things evolved, having gone through my junior and senior year at Columbia, uh, becoming blind and then returning when I got to Harvard in 62, uh, the first week I was compelled internally there was something that moved me to sit down at my Smith Corona typewriter and type 40 pages detailing those previous two years. Then I took those 40 pages and I put them away for 40 years, never looked at them until, and, and because it was simply in me to write at that time. But life intruded, and so I had to pursue my other objectives. And four years later, I decided now it was time, having had many decades to reflect, to sit down and write the book, which was, as you say, it was a difficult one because obviously there were many emotions tugging at me throughout the time I wrote. But I also have this belief that if you are accorded the gift of life and you accept it, then I believe you have a moral obligation to account for it. And accounting for it in writing is most important because that's the most precise way of detailing your time on this earth. Mm. Now, I, I always like asking people for a key takeaway before we wrap up the conversation, but let's put that towards the end. What, what I'd like to ask you is, more specifically, what's, the, what's the, the key insight, if you will, that you would like to share with any listeners who are either themselves blind or are, are, are caring for someone who's blind or have someone who's blind in their family? What's that key insight from your lifelong experience that you'd like to share? The best I can do in responding to that is talk about one of the people who's inspired me, uh, Beethoven. Mm. The young, deaf Beethoven, when he was 28, wrote to his brothers and said, today I stood next to a man who in the distance heard a flute being played and I could not hear it. Another incident like this, I would end my life. Then he said, however, I have too much music to give to the world. And so, and this is the key sentence, and so I endured this wretched existence, truly wretched. And this is a man who produced Ode to Joy. So how, you might ask, 
does something so beautiful and something so wretched coexist? I think that's true of all of us. I wouldn't say wretched, but we all have problems and difficulty, but we also have music within us that we can offer the world. I love it. If you were a wagering man and we're looking about the issue of blindness and when it might be behind us in our rearview mirror, no longer part of our daily existence, when might that be? <laughs> That's, uh, it, it's, it's in the realm of uh, a higher power than I have the ability to, to respond in a sensible way. All I can tell you is that we are speeding along as rapidly as humanly possible and uh, that I still have my promise that I have to fulfill. And I did say to the Lord uh, for the rest of my life, and certainly for the rest of my life, I intend to continue to pursue it. Mm. If somebody's listening to this and they want to find out more about the uh the center uh, that you're launching at Johns Hopkins, what's the best way of getting in touch or where should they go? In the first instance, I suppose, uh, just write to sanfordgreenberg.com. Mm -hmm. S-A-N-F-O-R-D, greenberg.com. Perfect. And a, um, a key takeaway for our listeners, blind or otherwise, the people who might be uh, scattered throughout the world, what's... Uh, What's that key thing you'd love for them to keep in mind after they finish listening to today's episode? Well, it would have to be about blindness. Blindness has been with us for more than 6 million years. It's really the oldest cruelty. It, it's a subversion of the creator's intent and an injustice that must be ended and what we are going to do, our primary objective at the Sanford and Susan Greenberg Center to End Blindness at the Johns Hopkins Wilmer Eye Institute is to assure that all God's children can not only feel the sun shining on their faces, but witness with their own two eyes it's rising and it's setting. And then and only then will creation be made whole. Hmm. Incredibly well, incredibly well said. Uh, Sandy, I have to tell you, it's been uh, an enlightening experience speaking with you today and learning about your work and learning about your life journey, which uh, clearly has had a lot of adversity, but uh, by looking at you uh, through Zoom, I can see that you've uh, you've tackled things head on, and it uh, and I, I wish you well with all your work and continued success. I think it's remarkable, and I feel the same way about you. What Thank you're doing, you. those hundred and fifty podcasts, are making a significant contribution to the international conversation that we all must be having. Ah, thank you. Thank you for your taking the time to talk with me. Perfect. And that's a wrap. You've been listening to Sandy Greenberg on the Do One Better podcast. Thanks so much for tuning in. As always, 
please click that subscribe button if you haven't already and please share widely with others as well do visit our website at liji.org that's l-i-d-j-i.org where you'll be able to find information about this episode and notes on a hundred other episodes with remarkable thought leaders as well thanks so much and i'll catch you next week